Colonel John Murphy, I think, has some of the best presentations, but you might look at some others. But I do want you to be aware of what goes on in this church and the support to that ministry and the support that we receive from that ministry. And uh, by the way, one of the things that we do receive from that ministry are opportunities on occasion to have apologists come and speak to us, and we've utilized some in the past. We've got something coming up really, really interesting in May, I believe it is, of next year. Jay Warner Wallace uh, will be here on a, a Friday, and we're going to have, hopefully, this place packed out. We'll do banquet style. Maybe, maybe we'll have a couple of different presentations. But you may also want to look up Jay Warner Wallace in anticipation for what's coming. Nationally recognized apologist does some, uh, I guess, arguments from uh, a forensics standpoint for the reality of Jesus and the historicity of the resurrection, if you will. You really will want to come see that. Uh, also, just in case I do forget later on, uh, today is the first Sunday for uh, Jonathan and uh, Abby Weldon to be with us. He's our new youth pastor, his wife. If y'all can wave at everybody, you'll have a chance to uh, meet them after service. Um, really, really excited to have them. And it was nice, you know, it was nice singing with you. Uh, you have a nice voice. I didn't feel like I was carrying you the whole time. It was really, it was really nice. Uh, but really, it was just really wonderful uh, singing uh, with, with Abby. Not to leave you out of the picture, Jonathan, but I, I really didn't notice anything special about your singing. Uh, but, but, your, but your wife was awesome. Uh, uh, also, uh, Melissa Morgan is uh, going to be leading now, officially in, in the lead with regards to our children's uh, kind of interim children's ministry coordinator. Uh, she is overseeing, uh, together with the ch- church staff, working together with us, overseeing all of the different things that are going on with the children's ministry. Uh, it is a, a very part-time position, and uh, we are going to be in process of uh, looking for the next permanent uh, children's minister here. But what you could do to help support her would be, one, to pray for her, and then, if you're willing, to, uh, I don't know, contribute 10, 20, 30 hours a week. We'd also like to see you on, on that front as well. Uh, but we're excited about where the Lord is taking us. I know that probably most of you have heard the word awesome. You know, it gets used from time to time about all kinds of things, like that's an awesome dunk, or that was an awesome meal, or that's an awesome Jeep. I, uh, I recently got a text from Eric Dorothy, and uh, the text reads, If you could choose between world peace and a Jeep, uh, what kind of tires would you have? And, uh, you know, my Jeeps are awesome. I don't know. I like Jeeps, but I don't know my Jeep is that awesome or anything. But people talk in those terms. Now, I, I used to hear from people from time to time, don't ever use the word awesome except associated with God. But listen, the Bible actually uses the word in ways that is not always necessarily directly associated with God. Uh, the Bible sometimes does talk about awesome, his awesome works, his awesome power. Uh, the, the creation being awesome. There's even a passage that talks about the trees and the forest being awesome. Most of the time, awesome is used of God in particular. But there are things uh, that, that God has given us that draw attention ultimately to his awesomeness. And so there is this passage in Psalm 89, verse 7, talking about God who is more awesome than all who surround him. And so if you can be more awesome, you can be less awesome. There's this sort of scale of awesome. But God is the one who defines awesome ultimately in terms of his person. Uh, I, I like to think of it like this. There was this old, 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 old movie, uh, Crocodile Dundee, uh, where Crocodile Dundee is out with his girlfriend, and he's, you know, from the outback. He's from Australia, and everybody from Australia, of, of course, is awesome. And so he's here in New York City, and he gets jumped by these 
uh, street thugs. And this one pulls out a little switchblade and, like, give me your wallet. And his girlfriend says, do what he says. He's got a knife. And then uh, Crocodile Dundee is kind of, you know, snickering. And says, oh, that's not a knife. And then he pulls out this five-pound filet uh, water buffalo in the outback kind of blade. And, like, now, you know, that's a knife, right? There's little knives that concern us. And then there's the awesome knife that before all other knives are not even knives, Okay, that's what's going on in the Bible with regards to the awesome of God. It's like there are other gods that surround, even kings that surround, or other things that are amazing. But when God is in the midst of these other gods, you look at these other gods and you go, you know, that's you know that's not a god. Now that you know the one true living God. Now that's a god. That's awesome. And so when you see the truly awesome as truly awesome in a way that nothing else is awesome before Him, it makes an incredibly uh, important impact in your life. And so some of you may be wondering, why are we talking about this awesomeness of God? Well, here's why. Because it's practically important. Because unless you know the awesome that you have in God, in Christ, well, things that tempt you, well, they won't tempt you when you know how awesome God is. Sometimes we are worried in a way or afraid in a way or scared in a way that we really should not be if only we knew the awesome God or at least stood in awe of this awesome God. So this is very, very practically important, but before we press into the awesomeness of God, let's go ahead and stand together out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. We're going to be looking at several passages this morning, and I don't normally do this because I'm not a translation snob, but we're going to look at some translations that say it this way and another that says this because there is a point to be made in the compare and contrast. All right? So here we go. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 25, the... Uh, New English translation, sort of paraphrastic, very modern translation. For the Lord is great and certainly worthy of praise. He is more awesome than all gods. Now, the Christian Standard Bible puts it like this, same verse. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 47, verse 2. For Yahweh, most high, is awesome, a great king, over all the earth. Same verse, another translation. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared a great king over all the earth. Another verse, Psalm 76, verse 12, New New English translation again. He humbles princes, the kings of the earth regard him as awesome. A more literal translation, he humbles the spirit of leaders. He is feared by the kings of the earth. In Psalm 89, verse 7, In the counsel of the Holy Ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround Him. And God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Now, the reason I just read from these different translations the same verses is just so you could see rather plainly that awesome and feared are used interchangeably. In fact, more literal translations are always going to say feared or the terror or something along those lines. Awesome is a contemporary and I think appropriate translation of the meaning here. Uh, but when we talk about an awesome God, we're talking about fearing God. And we're going to get into this in just a little bit about why does the Bible use that kind of language. But before we press into that, again, let me just ask the question, why in the world are we talking about this? Why are we talking about the awesomeness of God or the fear of the Lord? Why is this important? There's a question that gets raised by people from time to time. And it's an important question. And the question is this, why are we falling apart? You look at the news, you look at couples around you, you look at your families, maybe you look at your psyche, 
you kind of go, why is everything falling apart? Why is our culture falling apart? Why is my life falling apart? Why is my family falling apart? Why are my hopes and dreams falling apart? Why is everything falling apart? It's an important question to ask. And the answer that the Bible gives most fundamentally is people are not in awe of God. That's the way Jeremiah saw it. You go to the book of Jeremiah and you recognize that here is a prophet, one of the last prophets that God sends to the people of Judah who've been invaded and they're, you know, they're being carried off to exile and everything's falling apart. And the people are asking God, and that would include Jeremiah, God speaking through Jeremiah, they're asking, why is everything falling apart? Why is our nation falling apart? Why is our culture falling apart? Why is everything just disintegrating? And the answer that God gives at the heart of the first sermon that God through Jeremiah preaches is this. You're not regarding me as awesome. We don't have time to look at the first of all the sermon because it's 37 verses long. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, in the middle of the sermon, there's this thesis verse. And here's the statement. Your wickedness will punish you. This is God speaking through the prophet. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. God through his prophet is saying, you want to know what's wrong? You, know, you want to know why everything's falling apart? There is no awe of me. Or more literally, there's no fear of me. Now, I love the analysis that God gives through Jeremiah, the prophet here, because God doesn't simply say, well, you know, the reason things aren't going well is because you're doing wrong things. You're disobeying my law. You're sinning. Uh, he gets more central than this. He gets to the foundation beneath all of this. Yes, there's law-breaking. Yes, there's immorality. Yeah, people are doing what God doesn't want them to do. But why? Why are they doing this? Now, if I were to ask you, okay, what is sin? Most people, most of you, you're going to say something like, well, sin is when you break the law of God. That is, if you believe in a God who gives a law, gives a morality, you're breaking the code, you're doing what God doesn't want you to do, you're doing bad things. And yes, that's what it is to sin. You're telling me what sin is. But why do we do these things or not do the things that we're supposed to do? Why is it that we, we live against the boundaries that God creates for us or the direction that he gives us? And, and God lets us know, well, you've forsaken me, but why? Why have you forsaken him? Why have we forsaken him? Because there is no awe of me. See, there's a, there's a heart at the heart of the heart of the problem. And some people say, well, the heart of the problem is people sin. Well, yeah, yeah, but why did they sin? Because they've forsaken God. But why do they forsake God? Because there's no awe of God. There, there's, no, there's no fear of the Lord. Now, some of it, this is where it gets a little weird. Now, in the Bible, very frequently, it'll say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we know at the heart of a wise life, of a life that's lived in abundance, is one of the fear of the Lord. And then when there's not fear of the Lord, that's the essence of sin. But we get a little bit confused over this whole matter of fearing the Lord and standing in awe before God. Because when we talk about fear, we typically mean it in one way. There's only one way that we use the term fear. In Bible times, in the culture of the Bible, the word fear could be used in one of two ways. We understand one of the ways, but people would talk about fear in a couple of different ways, and one is really negative, and the other is actually 
rather positive. So let's try to understand what this is, the fear of the Lord. Why does the Bible talk about this? Sometimes the Bible talks about fear in a very understandable way. Like, for example, over in uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, it says, Fear hath torment. That's uh, an older translation. We understand that. Fear has punishment or pain or you're even concerned about death. The full verse says, There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. And we understand the way that that word fear is used because fear for us is typically attached to pain. It's typically attached to suffering. It's typically attached to, to torment in some respect or maybe even death. Oftentimes, of course, you know, our fear can be misplaced or it can be uh, inappropriate or disproportionate. You know how this works. A lot of us were afraid of getting hit by lightning. The chances of that happening is 1 in 2.3 million of somebody being struck and then killed by lightning. Now, Gina, just less than a couple of weeks ago, met somebody who was struck by lightning. They survived, but the person next to them, the woman next to them, she died because she was struck by lightning. So we know, yeah, yeah, you should be, scared, you should be afraid of that, but how afraid doesn't happen that much. You're actually three times more likely to die being hit by a meteorite. And so if you, you go inside when it starts raining, you say, well, are you afraid of being hit by a meteor? No. Well, then play outside. No, that's not actually the point of the story. The, the point is we're disproportionate. You're more likely to be killed by your spouse, one out of 135,000, than to be killed by a shark, one out of 300 million. So if you ever go swimming in Socorro, Mexico, on one of those tours where you get to swim with the hammerheads and you go with your wife, guys... Pay much more attention to your wife than the hammerheads because she's the one that's more likely to get you, okay? I, I'm kind of kidding, but not really. Uh, and, and don't go swimming in a meteor shower, okay? They're just extra. We, we, did, we don't know how to necessarily always weigh things out. There's some things that we're afraid of we shouldn't be afraid of. There's some things maybe we should be more afraid of than, than we are. I don't know. I just know that in the middle of all of these fears that we have, and some of them are disproportionate, Here's what happens when you're afraid. You become fixated on that thing. Whatever that thing is, it preoccupies your mind, your thoughts, your imagination. So you become paralyzed by the thing you fear. You, you saw the old, you know, skits or comedy sketches where somebody walks out in the street and they see this, you know, steamroller coming down the street. And they're like a thousand feet away. And they're like, they stop and then they get run over. You get paralyzed in ways that you don't necessarily know or seem to be irrational. You can't move. This is what happens with fear. You're gripped by fear. Everything in your world centers around that shark or that lightning storm or, you know, that spouse, whatever the case may be. That's the way fear works. And most of the time it's really, really negative because all of your emotions and all of your desires and all the way in which you relate can't happen except for the attention you're giving to that one thing. I thought about bringing a snake here this morning as an illustration, but I couldn't find anybody in our congregation that has a pet snake. I'm sorry if you have a pet snake and I missed you because I've done this actually before where I'll hold a snake while talking about a snake, but then I discovered that people can't even pay attention to what I'm saying as I'm holding a snake because some people are so terrified of a snake, even if it's not poisonous, even if it's a pet, people are fearful. And so if I took the snake and then set it down on the floor, that's not going to help. 
Because as I continue to talk, you're going to be wondering, where's the snake in any given moment? And so your feelings and your perceptions, your imaginations are all focused on what might happen to you, even though I've assured you that this snake is not actually poisonous. That's the way fear works. It grips us. Everything is done in reference to it. Now, now we understand that in a negative sense. But the Bible talks about fear in a positive sense, where everything is done in reference to something but the effects or the impact is positive. Okay, let me give you some verses here. This doesn't make sense to most of us in our own particular culture. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 14 says, Happy is the one who fears always. Like, what? How can I be happy or blessed when I'm always fearing? For most of us, that doesn't make sense. And then there's another one, Psalm chapter 130, verse 4. Because you've forgiven my sins, I fear you. Because you've been merciful... Because you've forgiven me in a way that I didn't deserve, now I fear you. What? We think that doesn't make sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense to us is because we think of fear being attached only to punishment, to, to pain, to suffering, and all the rest. But obviously in the Bible there's a fear that brings about punishment, but there's also a fear that brings about a certain liberation that is actually kind of positive, and it's a fear of the Lord. And you say, well, why would you call it a fear of the Lord? Why don't we just call it awesome or standing in awe of, and that's what modern translations do. Instead of talking about fearing the Lord, they'll just say, you know, you stand in awe of him, or God is awesome to you. But I like the term fear, and I'll get to this because I think it's, I think it communicates something that is really, really important for us to grasp. When it talks about the fear of the Lord, obviously it's talking about respect, it's talking about awe, it's talking about the kind of, you know, enraptured delight in the magnitude of God that is life-changing, life-affirming, life-freeing. That is what is meant by the fear of the Lord. I know sometimes people will hear that kind of explanation. They go, well, you're just explaining things away, and I know how that works. You know, you don't like something. It's an uncomfortable doctrine, so we're going to explain that away. This is not explaining away. This is the explanation. This is why most modern translations will translate the fear of the Lord in terms of the awe of the Lord or reverence for the Lord. But I still like the fear of the Lord, and here's why. When you fear God, like you would maybe fear a snake or a shark, if you will, God becomes the reference point apart from whom you cannot have an imagination or a thought or a behavior. He's the center of your attention. It's just that when there's the fear of the snake on the negative side, you're paralyzed. You can't move. When there's the fear of the Lord and he is the one apart from whom you can do nothing without referring to him, there's liberation, there's empowerment, there's freedom. When you fear the Lord, you fear nothing else. And you don't fear the one, in a negative sense, who has forgiven you. Happy is the one who always fears the Lord. Over here, there's paralysis. Over here, there's empowerment and liberty. Over here, when there's the fear of the snake, you're self-absorbed. All you can think about is what might happen to you next, but when you're living in fear of the Lord, you're blown away by his beauty, by his love, by his grace, by his majesty, and you're not even thinking about yourself. This is the posture of true humility. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. How could you possibly think of yourself less? It's because your attention's been captured by someone who is more majestic and more beautiful than yourself. There's a self-forgetfulness when you are in awe 
of God. Most of you understand this, or at least you understood this maybe when you first fell in love or when you proposed and all the rest. It's funny when I hear Nathan talking about his proposal to, uh, to Morgan. It's like, I can't remember anything that I did. I, I'm glad somebody was there to take pictures because apparently Nathan didn't remember the moment. Why? It's the fear of Morgan. Okay? And that, but that's not a negative fear. Happy is the one who fears always, the one whom they should fear. But that's not, and that, like, does that make sense? But it's not negative. Why? Because unlike the snake, you're dealing with a God who is forgiving and loving and, and kind, who is for you in such a way that when you turn your back on them, you're turning your back on yourself because you were forsaking the one for whom you were meant. Over here is the fear that paralyzes and, and actually in a strange way builds up pride because all you can do is think about yourself. And over here, there's a self-forgetfulness and a humility and a grace and a freedom and a joy. This is, this is how life is supposed to be lived. Where before God, all other gods were not fearful when you feared the Lord only. Does this make sense? This is how life has to happen. I... Uh, I was listening to the presentation from Reasons to Believe yesterday. And it wasn't, the, I would say, if you ever go and look at Reasons to Believe, really check out John Murphy's presentations. They're really amazing. Yesterday's was okay. But the gentleman did bring up something I thought was kind of interesting about how Brad Pitt one time talked about, I just don't know that I could believe in a God who just wants to be the center of the world. You know, what is, what is God's problem? That he just wants to be worshipped and praised? and You know, what an arrogant God. Something along those lines. Now, that kind of makes sense a little bit until you recognize that God is truly awesome. And until you recognize his true awesomeness, you will kind of lose your own. Life was meant to be lived in a certain way, and the reason God is pleading and pleading and pleading with Judah through Jeremiah is because God knows, no, I really am what's best for you. It's right that my son would forget about himself before the awesomeness of Morgan. Because if indeed God has brought them together and no one should tear them asunder and this is God's plan, then for Nathan not to be enraptured by Morgan would in effect be a denial of the one for whom he was met. This is God toward you and me, not as a dictator, but as the lover of your soul, the one who truly completes you. Now, there are implications in all of this with regards to the fear of the Lord, and I want to spell out two things for you that are really, really important to understand. When you fear the Lord the way that you should fear the Lord, when you, when you are in awe of God the way that God deserves your awe, number one, there is no going halfway with God. Did you... Let's see if I can put this in the, in the best of possible ways, if I can get my thoughts together correctly. If at the center of sin is a lack of the awe of God, then any time you're not in awe of God, you are, in effect, living in sin. We don't, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, because there's an attitude in our heart, a disposition of our spirit that doesn't want to make God the center of, the center point of our reference in everything. So what that means is, at all times, he is our point of reference. 
You can't be partly moral or a little bit religious. You can't relate to God as if he's the cup of coffee that you want in the morning, but then in the afternoon you don't want to drink it because you don't want too much. There's a time and a place for everything, including God, including Christianity, including Christ. That's not the way you go at it when you're dealing with an awesome God. God is not somebody who can be compartmentalized or occasionalized, like, oh, it's the vitamin C that I take at certain points of the year because, you know, it's allergy season or it's cold and flu season. No, you, you cannot, when you have an awesome God, ever, in any respect, in any way, at any time, be halfway with this God. I came across this story from uh, David Prince. He's a pastor. He tells about another pastor who came to him, and this pastor was pastoring a church that was, you know, it was a church plant, and they were there to reach people, and God was blessing, and it was new and fresh, and they needed to relocate to accommodate the growth. But in the relocation process, some men of the church came to him and said, Pastor, they literally said, look the other way. You know, we're businessmen. We'll take care of this. You look the other way. And what was going on is in order to sell the property at the price they wanted, they were keeping certain information back from the potential buyer. Now, I know we live in a buyer beware sort of a world, and, and that's the way that it works. But when you're the body of Christ, you've got to be very careful to represent appropriately our king of truth. We don't live in deception. So he was very bothered by, by all of this. The pastor was. He goes to his pastor friend, David Prince, and David says, here's the problem. Your men don't fear God, but you have better. So he goes back, confronts the men, calls them to repent, and they fire him. And I don't know what happened next, but I just know this much. When you get people on staff who don't fear the Lord, it's not really good for a church. Church may actually grow numerically, but that's not the point. God's church and God's people ought to be the kind of people that fear him above all others. You don't compartmentalize your relationship with God. It's not possible. This is why the Bible talks about our worship being uh, reasonable, full-fledged, without hesitation, consistent. Here's how Paul puts it. This is over in Romans chapter 12, verse verse 1. You got that verse? We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God, for this is your reasonable service. The only way you can respond to an awesome God is wholeheartedly, without reservation, consistently, without compartmentalization. Anything else is unreasonable. That's the first implication. And if you're going halfway with God, here's the reason. He's not awesome to you. He's, he's, you don't fear God. Now, there's a second implication in all this, and that is when, when we... When we When God is awesome to you as God should be, then and only then is everything going to come together for you. Okay, If we've established the truth that everything falls apart when we don't fear the Lord, then the only way everything will ever come together for you, for your family, for this nation, for our culture, is when we fear the Lord. Did you notice the statement in Jeremiah? This is verse 19 of chapter 2. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you. How evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and do not stand in awe of me, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. It's bad for you. It's not just that when God doesn't have his place and we're not standing in awe of God that we're just somehow, you know, I don't know, smearing God's glory or making light of him. We are smearing our own glory, making light of our own glory. Because if you were made in the image of God and then you trash the image of God or trash God, then what is your image worth? Or put it a little bit differently. Imagine you've got this replica of, I don't know, a Monet painting. And 
And everybody says, well, Monet stinks. Well, and you're the replica. What does that make you? You have a replica of the Mona Lisa, and somebody says, the Mona Lisa is not worth, you know, $100 million. It's worth five bucks, and you're the replica of that. What are you? You trash God, you take away his glory, and you're made in the image of God. What does that, what does that do to you? When we don't stand in awe of the one in whose image we were created, well, here's what happens. We inevitably lose our glory. You have no awe around your life. You will not be awesome. This is intuitively obvious. Most people recognize, hey, if I just go out, you know, into the wilderness or, or live out in the country, even, you know, if there are snakes and no running water or whatever, there's something that is invigorating about living in the wide open of nature and seeing the stars shine at night. That just seems to bring out an awesome in me that is not going to happen if I live in the inner city of Chernobyl, in the middle of a concrete jungle. We recognize this. There have been studies that have been done about this, about how important awe is to us as human beings for human thriving and living. There was a study that was done by a, a professor, Dr. Keltner, at the University of California years ago, and one of his most famous studies concerning awe was he had some students, half of the, the people in the study, stand before this T-Rex, a full-size replica of the T-Rex, and complete the I am statement. I am, and they would be looking at the T-Rex, and they would say something like, I am a member of the human race, or I'm a, I'm a member of the human species, you know, something grand and open and broad and and then he had another group of students stand in a narrow hallway. And their self-description in the middle of the concrete ceiling was always something like, I am a secretary. Or I am a soccer player. You stand before the awe of the nature that God has created. You stand before something that is awesome to you. It brings out awesomeness in you. This has been confirmed study after study after study. These are all secular studies, but they bear out the reality of what the Scripture talks about for you and for me. This is Romans, or excuse me, Psalm chapter 65, verse 8. Those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Without question, awe is important for human thriving. Well, if that's true in a general sense, when it comes to the particular awe of God in whose image you've been created, this is incredibly important. You lose that awe, you, 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 you're not in awe of God, you don't fear God, here's what happens to you. You fall apart intellectually, you fall apart psychologically, you fall apart socially. Let me just kind of take you through this, and this is going to be kind of obvious once I start mentioning these things. Just imagine for just a second that you are like some people who would say, the reason I'm here is I'm just a cosmic accident. This is radical, naturalistic materialism or materialistic determinism. Uh, the only reason that, that I exist is because one molecule crashed into another molecule and I'm at the end of this chain of haphazard events and that's why I'm here. There is no why other than I'm just at the end of this particular chain of accidental events. And one day there was this fish that happened to have the capacity to develop limbs and, and then th now I'm just here and one day I'll return to dust and when I return to dust... All this other matter, I'm going to matter to the other matter because I'm going to be eaten by the animals of which I'm a part or maybe I'm going to feed the plants and maybe my dust is going to turn into other dust. It's going to turn into something else. But I'm just a particular moment in time of matter going to matter. And because all I am is matter, I don't really matter any more than the chair upon which I'm sitting. So don't, don't even ask me why questions because those are stupid questions. I'm an accident. 
You get rid of an awesome God in whose image you were created, you don't matter. Now, I'm not saying that, okay? Don't cut out like a three-second clip. Ernest said, I don't matter. No, I'm saying when you take away the awesome God intellectually, what are you left with? You, you, you make light of his glory, you become inglorious. Or think about it like this. Naturalistic or materialistic determinists, they'll say something like, listen, I know about the experience of love, but really all, all this is is neurobrain chemistry and instinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Nathan loves Morgan. <laughs> but I know what's really going on. This chemical bounces into this chemical, and then there's this response, and it's not any different than, you know, a couple of dogs or cats or mice. Just survival of the species. It's just neurochemistry. Doesn't really amount to anything. Look, you take away the God who is love, who has created us for love, to reflect his glory in this world. You get rid of an awesome God, and there's no love. There's no soul. There's no glorious purpose. There is no direction. There's no meaning. You will disintegrate intellectually when you do not stand in awe of God, when there's no fear of the Lord. Oh, the fear of the Lord is so oppressive. How does this God, all he wants to do is, is make us, you know, kiss his ring and kneel before him. What, a, what an arrogant jerk. This is the kind of the position of people like Brad Pitt and others. It's like you've got it all wrong. You take away the glory of God, the majesty of God, and you have nothing left. That's just intellectually. Let's think about this personally or psychologically. Whenever there's no awe of God, here's what happens. You're overwhelmed. You know why you would feel guilt or depression or worry or low self-esteem? In some respect or another, it's because you, there's no fear of the Lord. Why, 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 especially as a Christian who knows the gospel story of Jesus Christ was sent on your behalf by God to atone for your sins so that you could be forgiven and in right relationship with him all eternity, why is it that you got Christians who somehow, in some respect or another, are still feeling guilt over things that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or 50 years ago? In some respect or another, the reason you're still feeling guilty over something which you have confessed to God is the greatness of your sin is larger than the awesomeness of God's grace. God's grace is not awesome enough to you. It's not as big as your sin. That's the problem. Or you're worried. Why are you worried? Because you might lose this one thing. Why? Because you've made this one thing, whatever it is, bigger than God. Or you're, you're absolutely beside yourself, out of your mind, because your life isn't going the way that you want to. You know what the problem is? You think your wisdom is greater than God's wisdom. You could go on and on down the list. In some respect or another, the personal situations or psychological stresses that you're having is because in some respect or another, something has taken on a size and a magnitude in excess of God. He's not awesome to you. There's no fear of the Lord. Why is somebody you know, so self-righteous, so full of themselves? Because in some respect or another, they're bigger than God. Their mind, their attitude, their disposition, their opinion somehow exceeds God's. There's the problem. Socially, what happens? What happens when there's no fear of God in a society? Most people, I think, recognize, hey, that's wrong. You see something on TV, you see something in the news, you see something happen, you go, that's just wrong. That's, that's, that's wrong or that's bad. That's not good. That's, that's bad. Nobody speaks in those absolutes if there is no God. 
Theodore Dostoevsky put it like this. He said, if there is no God, everything goes. Building on that, Friedrich Nietzsche made this point. Look, if God dies, if he dies in Western civilization, if he goes the way of the dodo, here's what's going to happen. All that's left is will to power. That is conflict. Because you don't have truth anymore. How do people talk about truth? Well, you've got your truth and I've got my truth. That means there's no truth. Everything's a social construct. Your orientation, your opinion, your whatever, it's just a social construct. It's not real. So you've got your society, I've got my society, but there's no truth. There's no revelation. What are you left with? Conflict. It's going to be me versus you or my side versus your side. And so I'm going to be in this society and you're going to be in this society and there's going to be stress. What do we see happening all around us everywhere? Conflict. Why? You're angry. You're bitter. Why? Because you didn't get your way. You wanted something and you didn't get it because somebody else was in your way. There was no arbiter. Just you versus them and them versus them. I think it's kind of obvious when you start thinking this through that Jeremiah is absolutely reasonable when through him the Lord says to his people, consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me. Things fall apart when there's no fear of God. Things come back together when the fear of the Lord returns. The question is, okay, how do we get this back? How do we get back to the point where God is our reference point for everything we do, everything we feel, everything we imagine? How do we, how do we get back the fear of God? That's a great question. And uh, I want to ask you to give me a week to think about it, and we'll come back next week. And uh, we'll explore this together. But this is at the heart of what we're about as a church, the ministry of reconciliation. Returning to people in appropriate fear of the Lord. This is not just for God, this is for you too, because we were made for Him just as He gave Himself for us. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, uh, we, we want to say thank you for being our God, the God as is above all other gods, more awesome than any thing or anyone who would surround him. And Lord, we know the liberty that that brings and the humility that that brings and also the sanity and also the personal growth and also the community restoration. Everything lies at us seeing you for who you are and you are an awesome, awesome, awesome God. And we pray that we would fear you in the best of ways, that we would be happy, that we would be liberated, that we would be filled with joy. Because you have forgiven us, we will fear you. And in that holy, righteous, respectful, awful fear of you, we can be who it is that you have made us to be, individually and collectively, as people created in your image, with very real souls, with very real purpose, with a very real need to know love and to make that love known. And may we see things rightly, and, and Lord, as we see you rightly, may the glory of it all, may the glory of the body of Christ itself be compelling to other people who see that we would return as a people 
as a church, as a nation, to a place of awesome. Lord, I don't know what else to pray this morning. I just pray you'd open our hearts, open our minds, and help us as your people to do our part in this ministry of reconciliation because you are an awesome, awesome, awesome God. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.